It's the scariest time of year So you know we had to do The Shining Stanley Kubrick, Jack and Nicholson It's the best horror film Enjoy the podcast Bad science Did the movie get it right? Bad science Or will we have to fight? Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bad Science. Today, we are talking about The Shining, possibly the greatest horror movie ever made by a super genius, Stanley Kubrick, who I just learned grew up next to one of our guests. So I'll introduce her right away. She is a professor at the Department of Psychology at UCLA. It's Dr. Rena L. Rapetti. Thank you. You can drop the L, but... Drop the L? Rena is fine, and... Why don't you tell us what that L is, though, Rena? Louise, after Louise. my Aunt Louise. Ugh, Aunt Louise, shout out. Thank you so much, Auntie Louise, for uh, supplying that L. Although, a little insult to her, we're dropping the L now. <laughs> She, she would have been okay with that. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so, yeah, I have a million questions for you, Rena. And you also sent me an email with questions of your own. Mm-hmm. And you brought notes here. So you are, like, super prepared. And I love that. I like oh, to be man. that way. I just realized I didn't have any notes. Sorry. <laughs> Johnny, you're coming in with everything that you could possibly need. And I'll introduce you right now. You know Johnny from Ant-Man, Superstore, Son of Zorn, and a million other things. He's a comedian actor. Johnny Pemberton. Hey! hey! Wow, nice harmony there, guys. Yeah, that was good. I think it was like a, that was sort of a rare harmony. It was like a third, like a flat third or something. Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly. Maybe it was a minor diminished third. Diminished nine? Fourth. I think it, it was felt, diminished it nine. Felt minor, minor, didn't it? Yeah. Let's bring in our jazz musicians and see what they think. Hey, guys. Hey, what's up? <laughs> oh, they don't have mics. Yeah. Okay, that was my fault. Uh, no, Johnny, seriously, thank you for being here. Wanted you on the show for a long time. Cool. It's a delight. It's a delight to be here. Prove it. Um... <laughs> I'm smiling. Uh, That's all we need, I guess. Yeah, I came here. Yep. I, I showed up. I feel like... That's pretty good. I uh, This is my last um, thing of this for the year. A thing of this. Thing of this. Like a thing where I go someplace... Uh, that's not my house. So the rest of the year, you're working from home. You got it. Cool. Okay, great. And you're writing a novel or? Mm, if I talk about it, then it won't, it won't happen. <laughs> it won't happen. <laughs> yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, okay, so we're here to talk about The Shining, obviously. So let's let's start with the movie. When did you guys first see it? What were your initial uh, reactions to it? I think I first saw it probably maybe 20 years ago, maybe 15. I'm not sure. I probably saw it in maybe early college. Okay. Like probably, probably like the early 2000s. And was it, because online I, I found out a lot of people have a, a negative first reaction to the movie. They feel like, oh, it, it was not for me. I'm disappointed in it, et cetera. And That's then upon, hilarious to me. Okay. I was reading some reviews of it last night and the, there's nothing, obviously all the one star reviews are from people who read the book. Like, it doesn't, it's not faithful to the book. It's like, okay, because it's not a book. <laughs> and then there's always one, there's a bunch of them that are threes. There's only like two three star reviews, which to me, if it's if the Shining is anything, it's not a three star movie. It's right. either a five or a one. How can right? you be right. in the middle? Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> I I don't know. I think I just watched it because. Is it asking why I watched it or asking? Were you instantly like, I love this movie. It's oh, one yeah. of my favorites. Whatever. Okay. I was just taken immediately by it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Fully. Same Z's. Um, and rewatched it for today. I Re- did. Rewatched it recently. I rewatched it recently, and I I can't believe the degree with which it. Uh, I had to stop watching it. Mm-hmm. I find it to be so terrifying. <laughs> And so, like, so psychologically terrifying that I'm like, this is, this is a punishment. I, f- I can't believe, oh my God, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. The degree with which that scene in the freezer, that's when I was like, I, I have to stop because okay. I know yeah. he's getting out. 
And I can't, <laughs> I can't remember exactly how, and I don't want to find out. Oh, that's one of the pivotal. We were, we were talking about that very briefly. Yeah. Uh, Rena, when did you first see it? What did you think? I probably saw it when it came out. My guess mm. is probably within that first year or the first oh. few months I saw it. I mean, it was a very popular film, the way I'm re- remembering. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. People and, went to go see it. And I think my reaction was, I think that I have always, I assume this is true from the start, but I think I always assumed that this was a movie about the supernatural, Mm -hmm. that what they were showing was, you know, making a horror film about the supernatural. And I think I completely interpreted it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I probably got scared like you, Johnny. I probably Uh. got very scared. I did re watch it again. Somehow it wasn't that scary to me the second time. Really? I know. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I probably was looking at it a little bit differently this time, uh, the second time. Yeah, I feel like, because this happens to me also with the podcast when I'm yeah. watching things that have scared me previously, but yeah. now with this like logical mind where I'm like taking notes and trying right. to analyze stuff, it isn't right. as scary for me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's so good at horror. I mean, he just creates oh, horror man. and... Kubrick this is obviously yes yes and so I wanted to touch on uh, Kubrick for a second because you were talking about how you like live down the street from him in the Bronx like you guys well, both grew up in the Bronx we both grew up in the Bronx I learned this I I, I looked him up on Wikipedia so according to Wikipedia uh-huh. he um he grew up in the Bronx I believe that's true um but he was born and spent the early part of his life very close to the neighborhood where I was born and raised. And what was interesting about that to me, because I I looked him up to think, who comes up with this? Like what mind would would create these characters and these scenes? The guy who faked the moon landing, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Takes a really mind. So so that's why I, I was curious. And he grew up near me. And I the connection that I saw was we both grew up very close to the Bronx Zoo, literally the wild animals, the lions, the tigers, the bears were within blocks of our homes, not our homes were near different entrances to the zoo. But I remember as a kid being aware of that and thinking about that, like, wow, you know what? There are polar bears. Just even though I'm living on a street in the Bronx, there are polar bears really close. There are lions that were in the Bronx Zoo even back in the day. They they were not in cages. They were on like they created like an African plane kind of field. Feel oh, okay. the savanna, and that's where the lions were. I'm sure at night they put them away, but mm-hmm. I wondered could there be a link between growing up that close to wild animals and having a mind that had this sense of danger lurks all around you? Yeah, I mean, I that's know. definitely like a motif in his films, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, danger you never know at any point could be popping yeah. out and scaring the crap out of you. Um, yeah, I'm making that up, obviously, but I did just no, to curate cool. a, a thought. And that's a rare connection. There's been so many writings about Kubrick, but I've never come across anything about how, you know, the lions affected his uh, <laughs> maturity. <laughs> the Bronx Zoo. The Bronx zoo um okay so you also have a bunch of publications that are about stress and about family Mm -hmm. and so i assume off the bat that you're like the most chill person and that you have a great relationship (laughs) with all your siblings and cousins uh so and you also teach a class called psychopathology and another one called develop developmental psychopathology those are classes i don't teach anymore but i have the big class i teach now for undergraduates uh, is abnormal psychology which is very much exactly in that what's going on here yeah it feels abnormal to me yeah yeah what's psychopathology developmental psychopath it's all part of abnormal right and so and so you were saying you felt that it was all supernatural like the first time you're watching it but now with the more analytical mind it seems like he's trying to say something about mental health or he's 
I don't know. Well, uh, I mean, I was in grad school when this movie came out, so I already had the analytical mind okay. of a grad student. Okay. Um, no, I think it was so um, not like mental illness to me that I think it didn't occur to me that he might be trying to portray mental illness. Mm. I, I think it was so, so different from mental illness that I thought, well, this must be the supernatural that right. he's trying to oh, portray. Oh, I thought the opposite. That you thought it- Yeah, that's why I had to stop watching it because I felt like it was so close to home. Exactly. Like I could see myself in, uh, what's his name? It's not Jack. Jack. Yeah. It's Jack. Okay. The, yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's like, it feels scary. That's what feels so scary about it is how much you feel for, at least for me, how much I feel for the characters and how like, mm. oh, this, this could happen. This yeah. is not something that. Yeah. Like, Which part of it relates for you? Like the stress of like overworking or like the, the pressure of working or something like that? The pressure of working, the idea that you have to you've set something up for yourself to do that is like sort of being created in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. The idea of like uh, holding yourself accountable. I mean, just the whole thing, the all work and no play makes Jack a doll boy. It really was. That's what if he would have been playing with his wife and kids. He would have probably got ten times more writing done and wouldn't have murdered right, them. Right. It's right. that thing where mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I think I, I tend to do that to myself, and it's like you have to. That stuff doesn't come from. Okay, if I just grind this out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's experiencing life, and then also right. yeah, getting the work done. That would have been a much different film. Also, it's just like it would a happy-go-lucky <laughs> film of all time. What about like a weird, like Swedish documentary yeah. about this? Just eat breakfast, and then he writes a little bit, and they play <laughs> yeah. outside, and the movie's over. <laughs> but that, but that is why it's horror because he made oh, yeah. you feel like you could relate to Jack, and then he took that. Mm -hmm. He took some things that we all can relate to, and then he twisted it into this horrifying violent behavior yeah. and that's yeah. what made it horror to, to to plant the idea in your mind that suddenly you could go from being frustrated with work and you know uh, anxious or you know whatever they were trying to portray that you can relate to and then twisting that and saying well suddenly that can turn mm -hmm. that's yeah. frightening yeah and it's definitely a like a combination of factors right because they're telling us that he had like a violent history that right. he like uh, abused right. his son right. um and had alcohol issues right. like an alcoholic right. um so i did also want to ask about you know the effects of that you know what are the effects of being sober after you know, right. recovering from alcoholism because right. he says it's like been five months right. and that I, I forget what the line is, but he says he's telling the bartender that like I've been White five months man's off. burden. Right. Yes. In the I'm same gonna, scene. Oh, all the being, being off the wagon has been hell. Something like that. Irreparable harm I'm that it's caused something. Yeah. yeah. Well, being sober would not do harm to him. It would help him, but he slips, he falls off the wagon, right? Yeah. Isn't mm -hmm. that the, isn't that what they serve him? They do. He orders yeah. yeah. a bourbon on the rocks. Right. 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 Supernaturally though. I would, right. I would claim, but maybe in his yeah. brain it has the same effect, right, right? Right, right. Yeah. He may be hallucinating. It's unclear. Yeah. But the, the alcoholism part, showing him as someone who's suffering with a substance abuse problem and he has a, a, an addiction to alcohol, that part seemed realistic to me. The part about alcohol being associated with aggression and sometimes mm -hmm. violence. Uh, lack of impulse, impulse control, kind of disinhibition of alcohol. Mm -hmm. That part and and alcoholism is can be associated with domestic violence. So that part seemed yeah. realistic to me. Especially when he explained it too, when he was explaining to the bartender about what happened, it was clear that he didn't want he was he didn't want to hurt uh, Danny, but he did because he's 
like I've been in that state before and I've been drinking a lot where you just sort of, you don't feel the weight of your body. You sort of like are heavier. Mm -hmm. The movements you do are just, you're not, you don't have as much control over them. So you do something where it's like, oh, I just did this crazy thing that normally I wouldn't do, but not because I wanted to do it because it's like, oh, I just, uh, I'm just heavier. Right. Yeah. And, lack of coordination. Yeah. Or and he explains that. He clearly feels very badly for what happened. And it's like, he's like, it's like it goes back to that thing where he's he's punishing himself because he he he's like he's it's almost like a thing where I mean I have a question for you about that is how's that work in terms of someone who is like he feels remorse for it but at the same time he's also still punishing himself for it which also seems like it's like a feedback loop where he's making himself angry again because he hasn't yeah. well, forgiven himself for the thing that he did that he yeah. was angry about so it's like. Mm -hmm. yeah. The anger regulation is obviously a big part of the disinhibition that, that that's an effect of alcohol. And sometimes when people lose control of anger, you can see this kind of escalation from a small amount of irritation and anger and some aggressive behavior to it almost kinds of fuels an increase in that behavior and a greater loss of control. Oh. And then it's almost like a snowball effect. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if that's what they want us to believe happens. But mm -hmm. that is often the way it begins and ends up when children are abused is just a complete loss of anger regulation and aggressive behavior. Is it also a thing where like they, that person feels bad for what they've done, but that makes them because all that doesn't all that come from from some sort of not maybe self some sort of self-hatred. So you despise yourself for what you've done. And so by hating yourself more you're doing something bad again to hate to give yourself another reason to dislike yourself. Yeah, yeah that, so I mean, almost, something like that could be at work. Sort yeah. of that self hatred. I think you're right. Can often be a part of it, and certainly the sense of regret after an act is, you know, the the feeling of guilt. Let's say mm -hmm. in a in an alcohol binge or or being completely intoxicated and doing something you wouldn't normally do, and then looking back on it later and feeling deep regret. But you're right. With that can come a lot of self-hatred and almost like what you're suggesting is almost like proving to yourself what a horrible person you really are. Yeah. By like acting the, that way. Right. I, I feel like that's what so many, so many like terrible people that seems to be like what's going on psychologically as a person who like they're acting out because they want to be treated by a different person, how they feel about themselves. Mm -hmm. I always think about that scene in, um, in uh, Manchester by the sea, the mm -hmm. one where he's getting in bar fights because he feels so much guilt for what he's done that he wants someone to hurt him yeah, because right. he can't hurt himself yeah. as much as someone else can. So he's like, I don't know. To me, that seems like a similar yeah. thing because he's like, Jack's hurting so much because he can't do any work. So he's like basically punishing himself mm -hmm. by reinvigorating this sort of terrible, like stoking the fires of anger again or something. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, that could be also just part of the reason he traps himself in this hotel in the first place. Like, he, because yeah. he's complaining in that same scene that his wife is reminding him, you know, right. that like she won't get over it, you know. And so maybe that is a way of him like, oh, I'm just going to trap myself with the only person who knows this thing so that I have this reminder and I'm hurt all the time. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, there, there's a they do try to play up the idea that work stress and work frustration can lead to aggression. And there's actually no evidence of that. I mean, oh. there may be aggressive people. So if we start with the premise that he's a person, that Jack is a person who has trouble controlling 
controlling anger, managing and regulating the arousal of anger and is prone to be aggressive. Um, okay, then any stress can lead to aggressive behavior. But the specific idea that work stress is associated with aggressive behavior, there's very little evidence for that. Absent a pre-existing tendency to just respond aggressively. Usually when people are under stress, um, the response is to withdraw from social relationships, which they do show him doing as well. Mm -hmm. But it's more like a protective stance. I don't want my frustration to spill out over to other people. I'd rather withdraw socially. And that's where the scientific evidence is for most people. Now, he's obviously an exception and they're showing you that. Yeah. To get back for a second on the whole regret part of it and the guilt, you know, because we should feel that, right? If we act in an inappropriate Mm -hmm. way, if we are Mm -hmm. wrong, then Mm -hmm. it's unhealthy to just say like, oh, well, whatever, you know, screw everyone in my life. You know, you should feel bad. You should regret. But is, is there... I don't know, a healthier way to go about it instead of this feedback loop that, that Johnny's describing that I don't know, maybe a lot of us get into. I mean, I don't know that guilt often leads to aggressive behavior. I, I know of no evidence to suggest that. Not to say that there's always the problem that there's always one person who responds in a certain way to, or a few people. Mm-hmm. The thing about the guilt in his behavior is what it shows you is that he doesn't have antisocial personality disorder. What, you know, or what some people might call psychopathy or sociopathy. And those are the those are the forms of psychiatric disorder that are more likely to be associated with aggressive behavior, aggressive and violent behavior. And the point that you notice, his sense of regret and mm-hmm. guilt is is telling us that he doesn't have that disorder. Yeah, because he does feel that. Exactly. So mm-hmm. it, that, that goes to the thing where he's being acted on by this... Uh, what do you call it? supernatural influence possibly? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a better explanation because mm-hmm. it's not a scientific one for me. Right. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, okay, so before we keep going uh, with uh, all the psych talk, which I'm loving, I wanted to make a few points about the film. So uh, first of all, there's a documentary that was made uh, about how, you know, the making of The Shining, and it's called The Making of The Shining. You can find it online and it's fantastic. Uh, it was, I think, originally aired on the BBC. Um, but uh, I like that because there's this whole, uh, which I think you mentioned, the whole Stephen King uh, argument that goes back and forth. I hate it so much. Uh, I can't believe it's it. It's very, very silly. It's insanity. But uh, so I read that actually Stephen Stephen King wrote an entire draft of the screenplay for The Shining and Kubrick didn't even look at it. And he told one of his people that he thought Stephen King's writing was weak, which I thought was just so funny because clearly he's choosing to do this movie based on yeah. the book. And yet at the same time, he's like, oh, I don't like this guy's writing. I don't even want to see what he's talking about. Maybe he means his screenwriting. Okay, yeah. I'll buy that. Which is probably true. I think Stephen King... I think he's can be a little bit verbose, actually. Oops. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Um, so there was a scene. I've I watched the movie Room Two Thirty Seven. Have you seen I this? I've seen it. No. Okay. Have you seen this? No. I should have seen it. Should have should have watched it. We'll do we'll do another one uh, on that one with. Uh, That's the, about The Shining, right? It's a tangent to it. What it's, is it it's, about? So. There's so many conspiracy theories about The Shining and, you know, how Kubrick Kubrick is this, you know, 200 IQ super genius. And so everything he does is on purpose and has a plan and has a hidden meeting. Wait a and second. So, what do you mean there's, there's actual conspiracies about the movie The Shining? Yes. <laughs> what what kind of, can you tell me like so two of them? So one of them you named, which was the m- moon landing. But that uh, has nothing the, to do with The Shining though. That just has to do well, with- Well, that's the theory. So the oh, theory sh- okay, is that ahead. he fakes the moon landing and he has so much- 
pent up uh, guilt and anger and right. all these emotions that he chooses to do The Shining. That it's like a whole uh, masked way of him expressing how difficult it was for him to fake the moon landing. <laughs> See, that, and that there's to hints me, throughout the film. That's clearly someone who doesn't understand the nature of film production, how incredibly boring and non-cathartic it is. <laughs> That's completely great. non-cathartic. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, and especially this one, by the way, he like tortured. I mean, not. I don't want to say torture because that seems like really uh, yeah. on purpose. But he, everybody on the set was like miserable making this movie. I Kubrick. think that's great. I, I oh, fully okay. agree with that stuff. I think anyone who has a cool. problem with that is in the wrong business. This is how it works. It's mm-hmm. terrible. It's like it's like going to war and complaining about the food or something like that. You just it's part of the process. Expect to be tortured. On yeah, you should set. expect to be. Right. I would pay money to get yelled at by Stanley Kubrick. I would be like love for him to be like terrorize me, to wake me up at four a.m., make yeah. me take a cold shower. You know, apparently, that's some I of the stuff uh, that that happened. I have stories about Shelley Duvall who was playing Wendy that like her hair fell out and she like got yeah. ill in and out wow. like for months Shelley during Duvall the shooting. Also, is now in a place where. I think maybe that was probably a precursor to where she is now. Oh, okay. She's on the fringe. She's like a Randy Quaid figure right now. Uh-huh. Okay. Not a dance uh-huh. Quaid, Randy Quaid. <laughs> right, the other yeah. Quaid. Um, so there was a Guinness Book of World Records uh, record because they filmed, you know that scene where she's like backing up on the stairs, swinging the yeah. bat at right. Jack? Right. They filmed it 127 times. Wow. And, you know, most of that scene is her yelling and crying. Oh my God. And so Kubrick would just like rail her. She would, he would just yell at her and it. get her like super uh, emotionally compromised and then keep filming. And and it just took forever. And then another one was Scatman Crothers, that scene where he's sitting with Danny and they're talking about how the grandpa right. like he's first started noticing the shining with his grandmother and that whole thing. Also, it was like 140 times, 150 wow. times. And he would just, just start yelling at Kubrick, like, what do you want? What wow. do you want from me? I don't understand. Um, so anyways, uh, supposedly God. the entire shoot was like, it took years and it was like a whole mess. I don't I know. I love all that stuff. Because that's, that's, that's like Fincher does the same thing, but to a lesser degree. Right. Yes. And it's all because the idea is to get someone so they're not thinking about anything. You're exhausted to the point where you can't act. All you can do is just be there and say the things. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. It's just such a such a difficult process. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, again, just that because he's such a genius, I assume there's a method to the madness and he knows exactly what he wants and he's not going to stop until he has several uh, options for it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, I thought that was interesting. And I was wanting to ask you if you've ever experienced anything like that where somebody like where you thought like that's a little too many takes. I've never I've experienced people around me who are like, this is too many takes. Mm. But I, I just I'm always down to be like, just let's keep doing it. I don't care. Like someone yell at me. Where do you have to go? Like <laughs> right. when he, the worst thing ever was one time I heard a camera guy wearing a steady cam complaining about because I was doing a long run of something mm-hmm. and he was complaining about it. And that after that I was so fucking pissed off. So I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing? You're like complaining about how the camera feels in your fucking shoulders <laughs> when I'm doing something here. Like like it just made me so angry because it's it's such an undercutting of something. Right. And it's such yeah. a specific job for him, if you think about it. Like, yeah. as a Steadicam operator, that's your whole deal, is right. to operate the Steadicam, right? Yeah. So, if you're going to complain about it, don't do it in front of me. Like, oh, I did I, I did it to you. I was the reason you your shoulders hurt is because I was trying to find something, and it took a while to get there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. 
I think I, I think the I don't I mean it I have no idea how he got that out of Shelley Duvall or it sounds like it was quite a torturous experience but he did she did capture in there the the absolute terror of being the victim of domestic violence yeah. the you know the absolute fear and the desire for self protection and being pushed to find yourself in a situation and being pushed to behave in a way that you would not normally behave. I actually thought that was an amazing scene at portraying domestic violence and yeah. what Absolutely. it must feel like. And she totally destroyed She's so convincing this, too. Yeah. yeah, role. And any, even the scenes that are like more normal where she's just coming up to Jack and saying like, oh, I'm going to make lunch. And I mean, I was, I don't, I can't even grasp what it is about her performance, but it's just captivating. I mean, I was like on the edge of my seat watching every like facial right. tick that she had. Yeah. Her anxiety and her fear, her, uh, yes. you know, I don't want to set him off. Right. But she explains what happened, the incident too, at the beginning of the movie. That mm -hmm. was my favorite because the camera oh, doesn't man. move at all. So you see her really slowly, methodically explaining, what's it called when the people, just, she's justifying it, right? She's like saying, yes. when the little boy, when Danny is, was hurt. Yeah, yeah. telling that story yeah. about yeah. how he came home and he, you know, his papers were there and- It's just one of those things. Just, yeah. We've done it yeah. a thousand times, yeah. nothing happened, but then one time it just does, so. I, yeah, I thought that, I, I really thought that there's one aspect of family dynamics that I thought he captured accurately. Mm -hmm. That sense of wanting to excuse, not wanting Wanting to acknowledge the seriousness yeah. of domestic violence, perhaps alcoholism and its effect on family relationships. I I agree that that was really a very compelling scene and, and it, it captured something quite real. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that it was taking place. This is like weird film nerd stuff, but I love that it was happening simultaneously as we are getting to know Jack because he's in the interview. Mm -hmm. So it's like we're right. just seeing him in more of a normal social situation. Right. And then we're also getting this information about him from Shelley. And I thought that was absolutely wonderful. Um, did you do you think that there's like was there something else that the lady she was talking to, which I don't know if she was from social services or or he was she was his oh, teacher? They maybe? brought some. That's a correct. Someone a comes oh, okay. into the home. Mm -hmm. uh, to interview Danny or, or, is, yeah. or they're bringing Danny to oh, see... Oh, because he's like not feeling well or something. Because he passed out in the bathroom. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, about... Right. He's, he had that like right. shining vision of okay. the Overlook Hotel right. and then oh, she called okay. somebody oh, and that's when they were correct, talking. Correct, correct, correct. But anyway, my question was like, does... Does she have the responsibility to respond in a different way? Like when you see somebody clearly excusing, you know, oh, if you bad behavior. Oh, if you suspect that a child is being hurt, you have an absolute legal responsibility to call Child Protective Services, uh -huh. and 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 they will launch an investigation into that. So she would have had an ethical and legal responsibility so to she report screwed that. Up big, and she this lady big. is partially to blame for the terror yeah. that ensues. Exactly. But also, exactly. this was the era. When Shelley Duvall was smoking indoors, so it's like definitely. That's right. Yeah, I bet CPS would show up and Jack would be like, "Look, this is what happened." They'd be like, "Okay, well, that's uh, a warning." I bet nothing no smoke happened. in the house. Yeah. Yeah. No smoke in the house. Do you have a cigarette? One. Okay, yeah. great. Uh, would you try like a cigarette? I'm not sure. In 1980, I mean, it would be. I should have looked this up. If in 1980 there was the same legal requirement, there probably was when the movie mm. came out. It was 1980, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, 1980 it came out, for sure. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the whole... But she would have had an ethical responsibility regardless. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, that... A uh, professional ethical responsibility. That lady screwed up. There's no doubt about yeah. it. I'm oh. calling her out. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The break is over. 
here we go back to the show about science i wanted to talk about the uh the intro for a second you guys remember the it's like helicopter shots and we're like following the car uh, through the mountains yeah 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 and it's gorgeous right the scenery right. is so beautiful and right. the music is so terrifying yeah, yeah. it's like yeah. this weird like orchestra little synth combo and then also just i don't even know what the noises were but like ghost type yeah, noises it's not a backward yeah. stuff isn't yeah. it i i yeah maybe like, i don't know it sounded like it but like, i was trying to because they talked about it briefly in uh room 237 but of course they went to a ridiculous place that i thought was just not uh those are sounds from the moon by anything <laughs> yeah sounds from moon rocks um but but i did think what was cool is that at some point they mentioned how it felt like like ghosts like it was like we were the point of view of you know, either uh, the people from the past that have been wronged or I don't know, something like that following them. And it just gave me a new perspective yeah, on that intro. And, and that's, I mean, that's what he does. He takes something beautiful, like, uh, you know, a snowy mountain and being, you know, removed and being able to be separated from, uh, you city know, life. your city life, your yeah. busy life and something that could be wonderful and like a retreat. But he turns it upside down and he turns it into something horrifying. Mm -hmm. That's, I guess, the brilliance of him as a filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, he takes yeah. normal things and makes them seem frightening. The worst. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I figured if you're a geek like me, rewatch that intro because it's honestly like, I love a good intro. I just figure, you know, let's start off with a bang almost no matter what. Um, and, and, I just forgot how captivating it is. It's really uh, just, and it's long too. It's like, I don't know, yeah. three minutes or something yeah, that you're that, yeah. in this flying don't the around. the titles go the wrong other direction? Do they? I think they're they going go. up. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're going up. They're, That's they're also light blue, which is weird. It is weird. <laughs> yeah. Like, what is going on here? I don't know. It, I, there's an odd feeling to the entire thing. Yeah. You have an excellent memory. Well, I just watched it last night. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but also, Excellent memory. I got a good memory for stuff that's yeah. not important to remember. <laughs> um, okay. My next thing was about that room 237, about the, like, there's different theories. I wanted to just see if any of this came to mind while you guys are watching. And it's is perfect because you haven't seen this weird documentary. Do you think that this could be some sort of message about the Holocaust? Uh, Kubrick was Jewish. He was planning on making a movie about the Holocaust that never got made. There's some references to it possibly in this movie. And then the other one was about the genocide of Native Americans and how we uh, colonized and then just moved on from this tragedy. I think there's like, there are actually several um, I don't know, like messages or like motifs in the movie about moving on from a tragic event like him abusing his son and yeah. just trying to get over it but then there's i think possibly these undertones of what does it mean for us as a society to deal with such a dark past maybe it's about having lions and tigers just a few blocks from your yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i mean I, to me it. it's about the human um you know the sense that we all have of our vulnerability ultimately and the sense that there's danger out there that is so hardwired into us to be ready to respond to that. So if it were anything, I, I don't know about other larger issues he might have had in mind, but ultimately I think it was about tapping into the terror that human beings are capable of experiencing when they feel threatened. Yeah, And I think that's the part that he t that he connects with in all of us yeah. that that capacity is there. I, I, I feel the same way. I, don't, I, I feel like almost no movies ever 
also about something else. Like, it's hard enough to make a movie at all, let alone, oh, it's also about this whole other thing. Yeah. Like, I'm yeah. sure it's it's mentioned, but really, it's about the characters and right. this about humans and stuff. It was If it was yeah. about those other things, it would be probably about those other things. I saw, yeah, I saw interviews with, with both him and Tarantino, who is another one that people think some of his movies are like allegories for something else. And they both said pretty much the same thing, which was like, we're, we're thinking surface here. We're, we're yeah. thinking about the movie. And sometimes there are interpretations that you can draw from films that were not intended. That doesn't mean they're not there. They could be there, but it's just not what we were, you know, purposefully trying to put in there. Yeah, that stuff is always so weird to me because it's like a thing where you can get whatever you want out of something if you want it to be there. And it doesn't mean you're wrong or right. Mm -hmm. It just means, oh, that's what I got from this. Right. It may be vastly different than what the filmmaker was intending, but still, it's just like if I see something, because my experience colors something that's why I couldn't stop, couldn't watch the movie last night because I was like, oh, this is so terrifying because like seeing Jack be manipulative, it's like, I could like, oh, I could see myself being like, I haven't done anything to that extent, obviously, but <laughs> I mean, if, so, so, you know, but uh, <laughs> it's like seeing someone be extremely manipulative. It's hard to watch because it's like, oh, I could see myself being like, uh, What's that called when you're like, you know, you're basically manipulating someone by lying to them, like trick when he's tricking her. Right. Oh, it's just so like so scary because it's so devious. Yeah. Exactly. It's just so devious. It's yeah. kind of thing where I think a lot of people don't have like they don't have like a certain darkness to them, which is great. But I think that's why sometimes I think you can you can watch something that's really dark because you don't have as much empathy for the 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 bad guy. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah, and and that's why it's horror because he makes you feel like okay, I can recognize little strains. There are little threads that I can recognize in my own life. And then he says, "Oh, and by the way, you can suddenly snap and become psychotic." And that's just not accurate so but mm. that's what makes it horrifying yeah. the fear of i can go from you know being irritated or or trying to manipulate someone to becoming jack torrent is it torrents yeah torrents yeah 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 and um, that's that's not true but mm -hmm. that's what makes it horrifying so you don't need to worry johnny i'm not worried one. about it i just uh, didn't want to experience it again <laughs> yeah that makes sense or to see like oh i'm capable of potentially doing something right. terrible it makes you believe that. Or it's like when they kill you see like a dog being killed or anything i'm just like let's just maybe skip over this as fast as we can yeah yeah rather like, not let's make this a, a short scene not a long scene kind of thing <laughs> yeah um i wanted to ask about hallucinations and delusions um mm -hmm. and how that relates to psychosis or suffering from mm -hmm. psychosis so how did you interpret that well there there's a category of symptoms in psychosis that we call positive symptoms ironically they're called positive not in the sense of being good but they're positive in the sense that they add something to your experience that is not based on reality. So a hallucination oh. is a perceptual experience that has no external stimulus. It's a, a visual experience, more commonly an auditory experience. It could be an olfactory experience. It could be touch, oh. tactile. Those are hallucinations. And, they, and, and then delusions are beliefs that are not 
based in reality. And, okay. and he has if if we don't if we don't make the interpretation that these are supernatural experiences, then we have to assume that what Kubrick is showing us is that he's having visual hallucinations right. and that he has delusions. The delusions seem very realistic to me, the, the paranoid delusions that um, what, he was always the caretaker is what he's told at one point, you were always the caretaker. Yeah. Right, yes. Um, you're, someone tells him, and this is kind of an auditory hallucination that's, um, that's feeding into a delusion, something about that your wife is the cause of this or it's all about her, she's causing this. I think they tell him that Danny is bringing someone oh, Danny, that's going to, yeah. yeah, I don't know, upend the whole situation. Yeah, the, the little, so he gets yeah. that in his head. Right, of like, right. So those, how dare he, I guess. Those, I could, I could interpret those as paranoid delusions okay. and auditory hallucinations. And then they see they show a lot of visual hallucinations too, which right. are less common mm -hmm. in psychosis. Much more common are auditory, you know, where you hear voices wow. or there's a delusion, there's a thought in your head. And those are all in a category that we call positive symptoms of psychosis. Something is added to your brain that yeah. doesn't belong there, that is not coming from anything based in reality. Outside stimuli. Right. It's and, your and, own... Yeah, there's no outside stimulus that's this light hitting your retina that's making you see something. Some that the the vision is coming out of your brain. Wow. More common are auditory hallucinations, but Okay. Uh, um, and that's like, you know, devil on your shoulder type hearing voices that are telling you to do things or telling, you know, you're hearing something on the radio or, you know, from your computer that's that's planting an idea in your brain. Um, wow. The delusions are very... I, I thought those were actually pretty good. The, the fact that they made them so visual, but of course, you're you're yeah. making a film. What are you going to do? You have to show a visual yeah. hallucination. Mm -hmm. If That would be much less common. Okay. Um, Although with my explanation for this movie, I would say it's the more supernatural base because I think Danny was, I don't want to say controlling, but like somewhat involved in these hallucinations. It seems like when he goes into this like trance thing, he sees crazy stuff that uh, Tony, his imaginary friend, uh, is showing him and then possibly... I don't know. I don't know about distracting. I don't know what the motive was exactly, but it seems like he was like sending hallucinations to uh, to his parents. Yeah, to get weird, that vibe. But then the thing: why would he tell Jack that he's doing that? And also, how mm. would Jack know if when Jack gets told about that by the by the uh, waiter in the uh, bathroom? That's something where that's basically Jack being tapped into something that are not just hallucination, because that's the first time right. he gets information. Because he gets information that like, oh, you have to stop Danny because he literally, he was talking to to Mr. Uh, I wasn't called Mr. Turkle, but because yeah. that's what he was yeah. in. Uh, Scatman was that in um, oh, right. you know, um, Cougar's Nest. It's not Delbert Grady. Is, is he? No, no, no. no. Delbert Grady is someone else. And, yeah, oh, I can't Mr. believe I'm uh, forgetting his name. It's such a, it's almost a common name, but Scatman Crothers' character, his, yeah. him, he, Danny was talking to him, essentially right. telling him. And he was he was coming because yeah. the waiter says he's seeking someone from outside to intervene and yeah. you need to stop this. Yes, and so he wouldn't know that. Right, that's like the shine itself because he's. Yeah, I feel like it's almost the, maybe like Star Wars, like the 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 Force and the dark yeah. side. There's like a power at play that wants Jack to win and wants these people to be murdered and Jack to be there forever, etc. And then there's. Danny, who I think is tapped into something where it's like, oh, I need to survive and I can't face him because I'm a small child and he will destroy me. But I can use this sense to like escape 
and maybe trap him, which he ultimately does. Right. I wonder if it's maybe the Indian burial ground thing, because they mentioned that early on. Right, yes. And also, uh, there's that part when he's throwing the, the tennis ball at that big painting. Yes. And I was like, it's kind of disrespectful. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's, I've, I'm telling you, room 237, you're going to uh, enjoy. Okay. <laughs> there's some weird, don't get me wrong, a lot of it, really Cranks. yeah a lot of it seems very cranky to me but there was there was some stuff i mean it was entertaining regardless but there was some stuff in there where i was like oh okay i could see how maybe there's a you know because it's again it's just like kubrick it's probably doing a lot of this on purpose you know he's yeah. putting certain things in certain places i guess and and he's and he's confusing i think uh the supernatural which i think is great that he would make the film about supernatural but he's bringing in a little stream of, well, maybe this is mental illness. And it's mm -hmm. the mixture of those two that I think is very unfortunate to, to leave the impression that maybe mental illness or psychosis might have something to do with the supernatural. And that's what makes it horrifying. Oh. Yeah, because I mean, you don't know where the line is, right? Like, is it me or is it this plant I <laughs> sniffed? Right. <laughs> or is it like, you know, this it's, it's a sniffed. ghost. It's not me, it's a ghost. Right. Yeah. I'm not crazy. You're crazy. <laughs> Did you, uh, I wanted to ask about like, Cabin Fever. Somebody mentions, I think, Ullman, the guy who like runs the place. Oh, that guy's such a good actor too. That scene. Yeah, he's fantastic. So that's like a th sort of thing. I feel like you'd be hard pressed to find that person now. Just uh, the way he was, because you're acting with Jack Nicholson, one of the greatest, you know, he's he's very massively famous and you're in the scene with him where you have to play high status. Right. And he's doing that thing where he's always looking kind of over his chin. His, his, his forehead is before, uh, was a, um, you know, he's like tilted forward. Yes. And he's doing that thing where, I don't know, something about it. I feel like that character, that character is dead. You don't see those characters anymore. That's like a, a vestige of the past. Wow. That guy that's sort of like, oh, I just said I'm a good a good man. Yes, well, actually, we'll take a coffee. And, you know, yeah. that real They compared him to like uh, Kennedy in the in the doc. Really? Well, I don't even want to say doc, but in that weird movie, Room yeah. 237. Um, but yeah, I, I loved his character also and thought he was so great. And he, uh, he was mentioning that he thinks it's possible that... So like people get cabin fever here or that, that oh, guy yeah. Brady did. Yeah. And so I just wanted yeah. to ask like yeah, validity of that. Bad science, I would say. Okay, that. You don't perfect. get cabin fever and suddenly snap and become psychotic and violent. Okay. It is true that one symptom of psychosis is can be social withdrawal. You you don't really want to be around people. You're not comfortable around people. So you might see those two things associated. Put yourself but, in a cabin. Well, yeah, yeah, in this cabin, right? In your life, like you're, you're sort of creating some boundaries. You're, you're not really interested in talking to other people or interacting with other people. That, mm -hmm. that's a symptom of psychosis. That's one of the what we call negative symptoms, where there's oh. less of something rather than something added to your brain. There's something less, and that could be social withdrawal, less speech. But that's not a cause of psychosis. It's a symptom of psychosis. And cabin fever doesn't cause you to snap and become psychotic. That's not how you become psychotic. It's you to drink a lot, a lot Did, of drinking. I mean, I grew yeah, up in Minnesota. Alcohol, yeah. It's like I feel like, yeah. oh, what are we going to do? Are we going to drink? Yeah. And yeah, I don't oh, know. what happened? Oh, the sun went down at 3.30. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, what else is there to do? Yeah. That's, yeah, let's stay warm. What I mean, are there other, like, are there side effects that, were valid about a cabin fever type 
uh, diagnosis. I don't know of a cabin fever. What is a cabin fever diagnosis? I don't know. I just thought that... Um, yeah, classic diagnosis. Is staying, the, uh... if you're, I don't know if you're isolated. Uh, sir, I believe you have a cabin fever here. <laughs> I can tell by this rash. I would prescribe you to open the door. <laughs> I mean, people need social... People need social interaction, but he had, you know, in... I don't. Oh, yeah. The caretaker, the previous caretaker also had his family there. In fact, they say he murdered his family. Right. Um, so and, and in this case, Jack has his wife. And so he's not really completely socially isolated. He has people. And yeah. Um, yeah. I just wasn't sure if there was like a danger in, no. you know, uh, taking five months and not no. seeing other people. That's Stanley Kubrick is putting that in uh, your brain. He's I mean, making he's you good think at normal things <laughs> are frightening and. No, people. It also seems abnormal to me, but that's also because I have five members of my immediate family, and so just thinking like, oh, we're gonna go on vacation for five months, (laughs) just the six of us is like, no, I will snap, I will lose it somehow. I mean, I think it's more likely to be in the other direction that you would, um, you would, if you were mentally ill, if you had psychosis, you might try and remove yourself. Like uh, Kaczynski, Mm. the Unabomber, was living in a cabin all by himself. He removed himself from society, but it wasn't being in the cabin and being removed isn't what caused him to well, also Kaczynski was tortured he was tortured by MK Ultra I mean that's probably what did it to him that that won't tortured help. by whom uh, by MK Ultra he was uh, he was the victim of CIA mine experiments when he was at Harvard. Oh, I see. There's that documentary. That oh, the, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I have he heard was that. like yeah. extremely right. psychologically tortured mm-hmm. to the point of I mean, yeah. <laughs> an amazing extent. Yeah. You watch that that, that miniseries about uh, about the about Ted Kaczynski, yes. and it's kind of like, oh, of course he's a Unabomber. Like anyone who survived that would be oh, have some Investing. sort of crazy vendetta against his brain was scrambled. Yeah, What's and that he may also have yeah. he he probably also just had schizophrenia, oh, yeah. And yeah. A, you know, a genetically based disorder that yeah. maybe interacted with some abusive experience. Well, I think that's what they were screening for in MK Ultra. They were trying to find were, it was this thing they're trying to create the perfect soldier, but it was about uh, a psycho. I mean, there's a lot of people who talk about MK Ultra, but it basically, it was they were screening people. They were doing psychological tests on people that were extremely stressful, and a lot of it involved like gaslighting to an extent where it's it's insane. Like the, the the what they did to them, they like roped them in with all this stuff, and they acted like nothing happened, and then it's crazy, it's crazy stuff. Wowzers. Um just fun stuff we're talking about here today. Um, <laughs> so another one was uh, the red rum you you wrote could be a neologism. Well, I was stretching to try and find you know what what could be accurate. What what might have Stanley Kubrick been trying to show? So there are um, a symptom that we call a neologism, which is an invented word, and you do sometimes see this in psychosis. It's actually it's a symptom in a third category of symptoms of psychosis called symptoms of disorganization. So this is a sign of disorganized thinking. Okay. So how would you know that someone has disorganized thinking? You pretty much have to rely on their language because how else do you know what their thinking is other than what they can verbalize? Right. And one symptom of that are neologisms, which are invented words, which have no meaning to anyone other than the person who's using them. Mm. So it makes communication difficult if they're using neologisms. Um, it's especially complicated if you're interviewing someone who who is using a neologism but also speaks a language you don't speak. So then that becomes diagnostically a little more confusing. But um, 
you know, I thought, well, maybe Red Rum is a, you know, but now we have to assume that Danny, the little boy, is using a neologism, which I think would be very rare to -hmm. have that symptom in a child. But maybe just the idea of Red Rum being a a neologism? Yeah, sure. What's like an example of one? Oh, it would be completely made up. It might have two syllables that, uh, or two pieces of two words that are put together that have convey absolutely no meaning at all. Well, not to to, to the person who's invented that. Oh, has total meaning. So, what would it mean? I'm just trying to think. Like, is there like a? That's so interesting to think about that. Like a a word that's invented that Uh, furry ball. Or furball, or no, furball would have a meaning. Right. Wouldn't say that. <laughs> but you would put two syllables mm-hmm. that don't go together, or two sounds that don't go together, and use it as a word. I'm, tr- I'm so wrecking my brain trying to remember sort one of that say I've like, seen. like brangball or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. And that would have a meaning to you, but it would be very hard if I were talking to you to know what you were is trying the, to exp- tell me. Is the meaning of that word like superfluous or is there a reason, like, is that an important clue to what's happening it's within them? It's a clue to a disorganized thinking. It's okay. a clue to someone oh, well. who's trying to say something and has come up with a word to say it, but that has meaning only to that person. Okay. So it's and almost it, like an emotional symbol. Yeah, it's it's symbolic. It's a word. Words, oh, language is right. symbolic, but That's it's funny. not one that other people can understand. Mm-hmm. So I thought red rum might be an example of that. Now, in that case, he's you know reading the word backwards, so it's a little more right. organized than we would associate. <laughs> yeah, with I thought that neologism. was more of like um, his shining, seeing the future yeah. ordeal, where he's like, I know for some reason, if I write this, then she'll see it this way and et cetera. Um, anyways, I wanted to ask about uh, schizophrenia. I think that was mm-hmm. my final note because Danny is talking to Tony. And so I thought, okay, maybe this is an example of schizophrenia. Well, I would say when when you're speaking to someone who's not there, you might be having an auditory hallucination. So you might be hearing voices respond to you, or you, and that's part of a delusion about another person. So they do try. I mean, if we don't, if we take out the supernatural and we say, "Is this about mental illness?" Mm-hmm. He he seems to be bringing in things like de- uh, positive symptoms of psychosis, like delusions and auditory hallucinations. He's bringing them out in children, which is very rare. Okay. I mean, maybe in Jack, it would be a little more. You know, at least he's a male adult of an age at which you could see symptoms of psychosis. His wife also, Wendy, seems to yeah. also have visual hallucinations at some point. I right. don't know if the idea is that she snaps as well under and the. What does she see? She sees blood. She sees blood coming out of the. Yeah, this blood comes out of the. Which again, the I do think was. Uh, was Danny showing her that because he sees it wow. earlier. Okay. So I don't know. Then Anyways. it's not a visual hallucination. Yeah, then it's then weird we're supernatural the stuff. But yeah, I don't know. I just thought him uh, talking as two different people. Yeah. You know, and saying there's somebody yeah. that lives in my mouth or that he hides you in see, my stomach. But again, this is what, this is what Stanley Kubrick would He takes something normal, like having an imaginary friend when you're a kid. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very common experience. Mm-hmm. And he takes it and he twists it into something horrifying. So that's why he's a great filmmaker, right? He yeah. makes us frightened by things that we either have our own experience with, yeah. imaginary friend, or, you know, our children do. Or Absolutely. 
Um, we're running low on time here. I know there's a new... Oh, go. Well, the one about? thing I wanted to say yeah, is the, the biggest scientific error that he made in this film yeah. is associating mental illness with violence and aggression. Oh. And I think that he, part of the way of scaring people to the degree that people look at some of this behavior and think it's a sign of mental illness, they then come away with the idea of, oh, psychosis, violence, uh, aggression. And the two are not linked at all. Mm. People who are mentally ill are more likely to harm themselves. They are more likely to be the victims of aggressive behavior because they're very likely to be in vulnerable situations, for example, to be homeless. Mm -hmm. So um, the the error, the biggest error is is just putting in people, perhaps putting in people's mind the idea that aggression and violence is associated with mental illness. And it really isn't. Wow. Yeah, he was possessed. (laughs) Possessed, I'm okay with. Possessed (laughs) by spirits from beyond. That that I'm okay with, Johnny. I'm with you on that one. And that uh, should be linked, it sounds like, in movies like being possessed and committing violent acts. But but uh, the movie Psycho or just being psychotic is also, yeah, you're right, in in plenty of movies, right? This idea has been put out there over and over in horror films. They use mental illness and it's stigmatizing. It further stigmatizes people who are already functioning under the burden, a a burden of an illness on top of that to be stigmatized in society is really a shame. Wow. So shame on you, Stanley Kubrick. Um, Remind me. Affliction. It's got Nick Nolte. It's a couple other people. It's like the most, it's uh, Paul Schrader wrote it, I think, the guy who wrote Taxi Driver. That in terms of like, like bleakness and borderline mental illness stuff that happens through isolation. That's yeah, pretty good. Yeah. I'll, I'll <laughs> okay. be sure to watch it. It's so it. dark. It's like just affliction. Yeah. Affliction. Okay. Well, I hope you guys will join us next time when we do affliction. <laughs> we affliction. I can't wait to watch that dark, bleak film. Oh, it's the most bleak thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I would invite like. some friends over, have some Coronas. Yeah. But make a big pizza. And, and watch put some sand on the ground and take your shoes off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a good beach movie, beach party movie. You have to, otherwise you can't stand it. Yeah, oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Balance it out. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Oh, so if you're going to watch The Shining, maybe that's a good recommendation. Like what you could do to get through the rest of The Shining yeah, is watch like at have, the beach. Yeah, have some dogs around, stuffed animals. Put a sunlight on in the corner of the room. Yep. <laughs> have cupcakes. <laughs> um, so, Johnny, where can people find you? Where can people see you? Uh, if you just Google my name, that's the best thing. That's the best way. <laughs> Google my name's J O H N N Y P E M B E R T O N, and you can find everything from there. Okay. When does this come out? few weeks. Okay. Well, in that case, I'm not sure. I don't know where I'll be. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Google Johnny Pemberton. Gone fishing. Gone fishing? I mean, maybe I'll be fishing. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought you wanted people to see that movie, Gone Fishing. That's a movie? Yeah. It's with, um, what's his name? Glover, Danny Glover and okay. uh, Pesci. I think Joe Pesci's in it. We should have talked about that. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a much more delightful film. Have an ichthyologist the join us. The psychology of fishing. <laughs> um, Rena Rapetti. Yes. People can take your classes at UCLA, I uh, presume. You can come to UCLA and take my abnormal psychology class if you're an undergraduate. Okay, great. Um, well, thank you, uh, seriously, both of you for joining me. I think I've learned a lot and I won't be afraid of my psychotic friends. Yes, don't be. Just try don't to help be. them out. Just I think. be sensitive and compassionate. Great. That's the best stance. Sensitive and compassionate. That's yes. good advice. Um, okay. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bad Science is hosted and produced by me, Ethan Edinburgh. Our associate producer is Emily Feld. Our editor is Lucas 
Bollinger and the executive proof of the moon landing being fake deucer is Brett Kushner. Follow us on Instagram at Bad Science Show. That's at Bad Science Show. Or feel free to send us an email, badscience at seeker.com. That's badscience at seeker.com. Let us know what you think about the show, any movies we should do in the future. I always appreciate getting your emails. And of course, leave us an iTunes review. That lets other people hear about the show. And I'll see you all next week. Bye.